Just a quick update before we dive into our next episode. Thanks to Audible, listeners of History of the Marine Corps can receive a free audiobook. Audible is known for its thousands of selections, and I frequently use it for both personal reading and sometimes as a source for our show's content. In the spirit of transparency, we receive a kickback for everyone who signs up, but the author or the publisher does not sponsor me. Every recommendation is a book I have read or listened to. I'll include my personal suggestion at the end of this episode, but don't feel obligated to select my recommendation. This offer opens the door to any of the tens of thousands of audiobooks offered by Audible. And regardless of your decision to continue your membership, this book is yours to keep forever. Visit audibletrial.com slash marine history for a free audiobook and a free 30-day trial. Now on to the show. Welcome to episode 114 of History of the Marine Corps, Guadalcanal and Tulagi, part one. In the thick of World War II, the Solomon Islands became the stage for a critical campaign that would significantly influence the direction of the Pacific theater. This series will dive into this intense chapter of history, and will discuss the fierce land battles, strategic naval warfare, and the unyielding spirit of the Allied forces. This campaign starts with the Marines' bold amphibious assault on Guadalcanal in August 1942, the first major Allied offensive in the Pacific. This battle set the tone for a grueling campaign marked by a series of complex operations and clashes, both on land and at sea. We trace the footsteps of military leaders, explore the strategic decisions that shaped the campaign, and the daunting challenges of jungle and naval warfare. The Solomon Island Campaign epitomizes the essence of strategic innovation and the sacrifices made by those who served, whose efforts contributed to turning the tide of war in the Allies' favor. Thanks for joining. Now let's talk about the history of the Marine Corps. The Solomon Island Campaign during World War II was a prolonged and multifaceted military operation conducted by Allied forces against the Japanese Empire. It lasted from August 1942 until the conclusion of the war in 1945. The campaign's strategic goal was to neutralize the Japanese base at Rabaul, prevent the enemy's further expansion, and secure the sea lines of communication for the Allies in the South Pacific. The campaign began with the Battle of Guadalcanal in the Lower Solomons in August 1942. The United States launched a surprise amphibious assault on Guadalcanal, Tulagi, and nearby islands, with the goal to prevent the Japanese from using them to threaten supply routes to Australia and to establish a base for further Allied operations. The fierce land, sea, and air battles including the critical naval battles on the Eastern Solomons and Santa Cruz Islands, resulted in heavy losses on both sides. The campaign's hallmark was the grueling jungle warfare on Guadalcanal, with Marines and Japanese forces fighting over Henderson Field, the airfield on Guadalcanal. By February 1943, the Japanese evacuated their remaining forces, surrendering the island to the Allies. Following Guadalcanal, 
the Allies advanced to the Central Solomons, targeting New Georgia in June 1943. Operations here, including the Battle of New Georgia, were characterized by difficult jungle terrain and a determined Japanese force. The capture of Munda Point Airfield was significant for subsequent operations. Moving on, the Allies sought to neutralize Bougainville, which became the next major battleground in November 1943. Rather than a full-scale invasion, the strategy involved isolating the significant Japanese garrisons and capturing enough land to establish airfields. The campaign in the Northern Solomons was essentially part of the wider strategy to encircle Rabaul and remove power from the Japanese. By late 1943 and into 1944, the Allied forces had secured positions on Bougainville and the surrounding islands. The Japanese stronghold at Rabaul was effectively besieged, bypassed by Allied control of surrounding areas, and subjected to continuous air bombardment. We will break down each of these operations, starting with Guadalcanal. Japan's surprise assault in December 1941 blindsided the Allied forces dealing a heavy blow as they seized and ravaged numerous strategic points across the Pacific. After their attack, Japan suddenly found themselves tasked with defending an expansive perimeter that stretched from the Kuril Islands down to the Bay of Bengal and out to the Bismarck Archipelago, which is located near the Solomon Islands. This massive perimeter was frankly too vast for their naval capabilities. A Japanese officer described this sprawling line of defense as Quote, just about the limit, the maximum limit of our capability, unquote. But despite reservations from their own naval ranks, Tokyo doubled down on their assertive tactics, pushing forces to venture even further into the Pacific to snatch up more islands. But this overextension spelled disaster for Japan. Their ambition propelled them to Rabaul in Papua New Guinea, a key position near the Solomon Island chain that required a considerable occupation force to secure. By January 1942, Japanese troops had fortified Rabaul into a stronghold. Within a year, Japan would retreat from many newly acquired territories, leaving their reserve forces to fend for themselves. This scenario was eerily foreseen by Tokyo's military planners. With impressive accuracy, they predicted, quote, the enemy plans to attack Rabaul, since it is the operational base for the Army, Navy, and Air Forces. The enemy will try to accomplish this task in the Solomon Island area by driving our units off Guadalcanal Island and advancing northwards on the Solomon Island. In the eastern New Guinea area, the enemy will secure the Buna vicinity and attack the Lai and Salamaua areas from the sea. After penetrating Dampier Strait, they will attack Rabaul in joint operations with forces on the Solomon Islands. After this, planning to attack the Philippine Islands, they will continue operations along the northern coast of New Guinea. Unquote. Japan's overreach, driven by ambition and strategic miscalculations, ultimately undermined Japan's hold on the Pacific theater, setting the stage for their eventual withdrawal and the shifting tides of World War II. Japan's strategic ambitions included the establishment of crucial air and naval bases throughout the Pacific, with Midway identified as a pivotal location in the northern Pacific. Their strategy aimed to provoke the American fleet into a decisive battle and finish the job they started at Pearl Harbor. 
Japan's objectives extended to New Guinea and the nearby Solomon Islands in the southern Pacific. However, the defeat at Midway proved catastrophic for Japan, significantly changing its strategic goal. This pivotal moment allowed the Allied forces to initiate their first offensive operation against Japanese positions in the Pacific. Even after Japan's loss at Midway, they weren't ready to give up on the Solomon Islands. The United States recognized the island's significance. They identified it as an advantageous location for launching a counteroffensive. The stage was set for what would become a critical and intense phase of the Pacific theater. Yet, launching an attack here was anything but a walk in the park. The Solomons were well defended, and an offensive attack would have been too risky. The decision was to first hit Guadalcanal in the lower Solomon Island chain. Japan seized the area in April, establishing a base at Tulagi and beginning construction of an airstrip on Guadalcanal's northern shore, a strategic spot that sat in a hot spot of enemy activity, including the Japanese 7th Army and multiple naval and air fleets. 20 miles of open water separated Tulagi from Guadalcanal. That section of water would soon receive the name Iron Bottom Sound, due to the large number of ships and aircraft from both the Allied and Japanese forces that were sunk during the intense and prolonged naval battles of the Guadalcanal campaign. The name is a somber reminder of the fierce fighting that took place and the many lives lost. The seabed became a final resting place for these vessels, effectively turning it into an iron graveyard. Guadalcanal was one of the few areas in the Solomons with terrain that allowed for quick development of airfields. Once the island was seized, Japan immediately started clearing ground and building an airstrip along its northern coastal plain. The number of enemy forces in this area was enormous. The Americans needed a platform for the Pacific push, and they found it in the developing airfield in the natural harbor at Tulagi. After rigorous planning, Operation Watchtower strategy was born, not on a whim, but as a calculated move by Washington to initiate the Allies' first offensive strike in the Pacific. They needed a unit with amphibious assault experience, and the 1st Marine Division was the top pick, even though its leader, Major General Alexander A. Vandergrift, expecting a longer lead time to prep his Marines. As the 1st Marines relocated to New Zealand, they received orders to lead the Watchtower assault, catching Major General Vandergrift off guard. He anticipated a grace period of six months to condition his troops for combat, but the Marine Corps afforded him no such luxury. In under four weeks, the 1st Marine Division pivoted its training to adapt to the dense jungle environment they would encounter and crafted a battle strategy with minimal intelligence on the island's terrain. The initial D-Day was slated for August 1st, but Vandergrift, recognizing the enormity of the task, successfully petitioned for an additional week of preparation. The new D-Day was set for August 7th. But despite this extension, the outlook of getting an entire division ready for an amphibious campaign on such short notice wasn't looking good. Vandergrift, however, leaned into his four cardinal points that he often shared with his officers. One, know your subject. Two, 
Be sure in your own mind that your mission is correct. Three, always believe, no matter how hard the going, that you come through successfully. And four, if you have any doubts of that, damn well keep them to yourself. Vandergriff's concerns were shared in the Naval Department. The success of an amphibious landing hinged on a robust maritime support. But the American fleet was still suffering from losses at Pearl Harbor, Midway, and the Coral Sea. The Japanese, despite their setbacks at Midway, still possessed aircraft capable of inflicting severe damage on both ground forces and the naval vessels essential to the Marines' amphibious assault. Launching the offensive on Guadalcanal and Tulagi was a gamble that could potentially result in the 1st Marine Division becoming a sacrificial pawn if the risk to naval vessels got too high. The lack of available ships significantly influenced the quantity and type of equipment the 1st Marines could bring along at departure. When the ships pulled into Wellington, the Marines quickly offloaded and repacked the necessary gear and supplies for the Guadalcanal mission. But despite their efforts, space constraints were critical. Much of the motorized transport and the bulkier cargo trucks couldn't fit. These essential pieces of equipment had to be left behind and wait for the arrival of the supporting units. Marines only carried with them the necessary supplies they actually needed to fight and live on the island. The essentials that made the cut included provisions for 60 days and enough ammunition for a fierce 10-day battle. Major General Vandergrift was up against more than just logical constraints. There was a contentious debate over who should hold the reins of the operation. Rear Admiral Richmond K. Turner was assigned overall command of the Marines, a decision that did not sit well with the Corps. They believed that the landing force commander on the ground should be in charge. And although U.S. amphibious doctrine would eventually align with the Marine Corps' perspective, Turner's word was law for ground troop operations during the Guadalcanal campaign. In July 1942, Admiral Chester Nimitz ordered a secret rendezvous of assault forces south of Fiji to prevent enemy observation. This was the first face-to-face strategy session among the unit commanders. The assault force, which was a composite of marine battalions and a fleet of ships, traveled from all around the world to this meeting. The 2nd Marines was guarded by carriers, and they embarked from San Diego. The 1st Raider Battalion was picked up at Noumea and was one of the four destroyer transports of Transport Division 12. The 3rd Defense Battalion, on board the USS Beetlejuice in Zeilin, was en route from Pearl Harbor. It joined the imposing carrier force led by the USS Saratoga and USS Enterprise. The rendezvous occurred as planned on July 26th, 367 miles south of Fiji. A conference was immediately held aboard the Saratoga, with all critical commanders except Admiral Gormley, who was represented by a staff due to pressing commitments. During this meeting, glaring problems came to light, including a lack of agreement on the operation support logistics, which exposed a broader disagreement between military leaders. General Vandergrift learned for the first time that his assumptions about having adequate air and naval support for the landings were wrong. 
This was a significant problem for Vandergriff because his plans were based on this assumption. He assumed there would be enough time to disembark all forces and have time to offload supplies. His plan called for air support for four days. As he was processing that change of information, he was informed that the task force under the command of Fletcher intended a swift strike rather than prolonged support, planning to withdraw just two days after the initial landing. Fletcher insisted that all transports could be unloaded during the first day and the ships would be out of there by night. This revelation meant that Vandergriff's forces would be vulnerable to enemy attacks until the airfield was operational. And to add more salt to the wound, Vandergriff learned that the 2nd Marines, whom he had anticipated as reserves, were designated for the occupation of Indony and would leave the area on D-Day with Admiral Turner. Vandergriff protested about this change, but he was quickly overruled. In another telling incident before the operation's rehearsal, Marine Major Manley L. Curry, commander of the 3rd Battalion, 10th Marines, delivered a briefing on naval gunfire support to the amphibious forces gunnery officers. His audience was unfamiliar with the subject, and it showed the gaps in their preparedness for the mission ahead. This introduction to the Guadalcanal operation convinced Vandergriff not only would he be up against an enemy force, but he would also have to face the command's procedural challenges. The rehearsals for the landing in late July 1942 sparked disagreement among the ranks, specifically from the Marines. The transport vessels were considered a priority, which added many new problems. The need to preserve the landing crafts limited the scope of realistic landing drills. General Vandergriff saw this training as a waste of resources, a complete bust in his own words. But despite his reservations, the troops benefited from extra debarkation training. The attack force ships utilized this time to refine their gunfire support strategies, a critical component for the impending operation. As dusk set in on the eve of July 31st, the fleet departed from Coro, splitting into two groups. The carrier task force veered north and west, while the transports, with the marine contingent nearly 19,000 strong, made a steady beeline for the Solomon Islands. Weather was not a concern for the incoming Marines. Quote, Weather conditions during the final two days of the approach were extremely favorable. The sky was generally overcast with low ceiling and intermittent rain squalls, and there were no signs of hostile reconnaissance aircraft or submarines, and nothing indicated that our approach had been observed. Unquote. Internal discrepancies in troop numbers between the amphibious force and the 1st Marine Division records make confirming the exact number of Marines embarked challenging. But regardless, it's clear that a considerable force was at play. The chosen route for the convoy was a strategic play, keeping well to the south of the Solomon Island chain and gradually shifting northward. Rear Admiral Turner's Task Force 62 was split into two groups. Transport Group X-Ray, led by Captain Reef Snyder, with the forces slated for Guadalcanal embarked. Transport Group Yoke, under Captain Ash, carried the assault troops for the Tulagi landing. These groups were meticulously organized into subgroups, 
which showed the level of planning invested in this operation. In the pre-dawn hours of August 7th, the force took position west of Cape Esperance. The two groups were six miles apart and traveled at a speed of 12 knots towards their target. With precise coordination, the two groups split to fulfill their respective missions. Transport Group X-Ray was further organized into two parallel lines of ships, 750 yards between each vessel and about 1,000 yards between columns. The final approach to the landing beaches was eerily quiet, with no indication of enemy presence. At 6.14, the supporting ships launched their first barrage, which shattered the silence, marking the beginning of a pivotal moment in the Pacific theater. Thanks for listening. Join us next week for part two of Guadalcanal and Tulagi, where we will discuss the amphibious landing. This episode's audiobook is Starship Troopers by Robert A. Heinlein. Just about every Marine has heard of Starship Troopers. It cemented itself as a staple in sci-fi, both as a novel and as a film. I know it could be obnoxious when someone says the book is better than the movie, but it's definitely the case with Starship Troopers. The film and the book couldn't be more different in tone and intent. Heinlein served in the Navy, and this book is packed with the kind of detail you expect from an author with a military background. From the camaraderie between soldiers to the complaints of the technology within the military. He also digs into some big ideas like the cost of citizenship and the ethics of war. This book will get you thinking about duty and sacrifice with some alien blasting action to keep the pace up. In my opinion, the movie seems to mock the very things the book takes seriously, like the glamour of war and society's hunger for conflict. I still enjoy the movie, but they're two very different pieces of work. But if you want to dig into some military philosophy, Starship Troopers the book has got you covered. Every time I read it, I always reflect on the nature of service. Visit audibletrial.com slash marine history for a free copy of this audiobook and a free 30-day trial. If you like what you're hearing, check out historyofthemarinecorps.com. Here you can subscribe to our newsletter, find out more information about each show, and look at references used for each episode. We're also on Facebook and Twitter at Marine History and on Instagram at History of the Marines. If you're enjoying the podcast, tell a friend. We count on listeners like you to share and any help would be greatly appreciated. If you don't like what you hear, please contact us through historyofthemarinecorps.com and tell us why. I'm always looking for ways to improve. Thanks for listening and Semper Fi.